Not a day goes by late October 2023 where someone doesn't ask me what's going on in the commercial real estate markets, and it truly is changing day by day. There's a lot of research done out there, you know, trends on on vacancy and, and occupancy and all kinds of things. But I thought today on our CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast, we talked with someone who's actually making some of those decisions. I'm Dan Spiegel, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Cobalt Banker Commercial, and I will be your host today on this CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast. With us today is Greg Kodara, Managing Partner of Artisan Capital. Greg has an extensive history in investment banking and investment management. He's got an MS degree in real estate development, an MS in economics, and a BA in finance. And he is making those decisions today, both has a great view of the capital markets from a firsthand perspective and real estate decision-making. So I'm looking forward to having that firsthand conversation, not thinking so much about what the pundits say or what you see in, in uh, economic reports and really talk about what it's like day-to-day in today's market and commercial real estate. So Greg, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. It's an honor. So let's just you know get started a little bit. First, let's discuss your background just a little bit. I, I gave a very high-level overview. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background beyond your education and Artisan Capital and what your role is there today? Sure. So I, I came up in, in multifamily. So before founding Artisan, I was a partner in a multifamily value-add platform. And before that, I um, ran capital markets for a national development platform that, that was based in LA. I founded Artisan a few years ago in order to back emerging sponsors. And what we're looking to do is when sponsors usually start their platforms is when they get the best deals before they get too big. And that usually the, the guy or the girl running it transitions from being an acquisitions person to uh, becoming a manager. And usually the, the returns change dramatically. So we try to get those first really great deals when the sponsor is really willing to chew through concrete to get a deal done. So we, we've been able to work with some great sponsors to date. And it's given us some exposure to some incredible strategies that, you know, we wouldn't have have thought of ourselves. It's a great perspective you have uh, getting in sort of on the ground floor, so to speak. I mean, a lot of today's chatter in the marketplace is about institutional capital and, and, and pulling back from the market and finance. So why don't we start a little bit just talking about the state of capital markets today? I mean, I hear from a lot of our brokerage professionals and they hear from their clients that it is a struggle to get capital. And as deals come up that need to be refinanced or they're seeking capital for a new investment, they're not finding it at the sources that were available just a, you know six months or a year ago. So from your standpoint, what, how would you characterize the state of capital markets for commercial real estate at the moment? I, I feel like we're in the eye of the storm right now. Um, a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines and what you hear, the, the sentence you hear the most on the equity side is we're waiting for price discovery. So when you have a commingled fund and your promotes are crossed, uh, typically you don't want to be the first one out of the gate and potentially be too early. So on the equity side, you know, whereas a value add used to be a 15% IRR, now you can get those same returns from sub debt. So from MES or PREF. So equity is up in the twenties now, you know, your bridge loans, will earn you 12% unlevered, although those sponsors very often are levered, which is, I think, something we should touch on later because it's really affecting the availability of capital right now. And, you know, your Fannie and Freddie, your agencies are priced right now for the five-year fixed at six, six and a, 6.3, 6, 6.5, right? 
So that's kind of where your capital stacks up. And for a deal to work at a real 20% asks for a big haircut for sponsors and for existing capital. And for people that haven't come out of the gate and sold a few months ago when return expectations were a bit lower, people are at a standstill because they don't want to take 30% haircuts to what it was worth, you know, just six months to nine months ago. Right. So I think you, it's something you said at the very beginning I want to dig a little bit deeper into. So you said we're, we're waiting for price discovery. I assume that you're referring to the fact that, you know, interest rates have, have run up, you know, it, I won't say super high, but they've just run up sharply over the past year. Uh, which affects uh, the availability of capital, the return calculations and things like that. So what do you mean by waiting for price discovery? Well, if you look at just a simple multifamily market, which is the one that the most people track, there haven't been that many deals that have uh, closed in the past months, right? So there are some deals that had to close because the lender uh, forced to close. They couldn't uh, get an extension. But those are very few because a lot of the bridge lenders, our understanding is we, ha we don't have any loans and workouts but a lot of people I know do, and the lenders are working with people because they don't want to take a write down at the moment because A, they have to raise capital and B, they also might have some kind of back leverage and that's stopping them from wanting to write anything down right now because if you write down one 1980s value add deal in Phoenix, you got to write them all down. So that that's the big issue in the market and that's why there's such a standstill. I think I also hear you know, commonly is is banks don't like to own real estate. I think they have maybe learned their lessons. I recall the RTC days of the early 90s and obviously 2008. And I really think banks will try to accommodate their borrowers as best they can because uh, they obviously have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, but they don't like to own real estate. So they're, they're looking for other solutions. So let me just, let's just keep on that theme for a second. So as let's say a loan comes up, um, it's due and, and now the value's dropped and the equation is simply different. What are the options for an investor who needs to bring in new capital or additional capital to the deal? Is that, is, what's the market like for that? Well, that, that's a great question. So first of all, I think the question is, is your lender working with you? And right now it seems to be both the banks so if you look at it from a bank perspective, you know, the average bank has what, like 10 turns of leverage. So taking a 10% write down is about as much as they want to, because that's going to affect your equity, right? The bridge lenders, as we just discussed, have to, are working with you because of capital, et cetera. So now, you know, there are a lot of people that raise significant amounts of money for rescue capital. But the issue that we're seeing now is that the, the attachment point of some of the bridge loans that were done at the end of 21 and the beginning of 22 are so high that those are even out of the money. And I think that's the big issue. And effectively the bridge lenders are holding the B piece of those loans because either they have a back, um, back leverage or they just straight up sold an A, an A piece of the loan. So that's why it's taken so long. And, you know, but by beginning of next year, I think you're going to have a lot of people that, you know, just will not be able to pretend or extend anymore. Pretend or extend. I love that phrase. Maybe I don't love that phrase for the industry, but it's a it's a good one. What is? It? I think there's an. I've got another one for you, Dan. It's a a rolling loan gathers no losses. Um, <laughs> that is that. I guess that's lender humor or real estate humor, one or the other. It's like economist humor. It it only really affects a very small segment. Yeah. So tell, just go a little deeper for the audience here. So tell, t why don't you explain exactly what a bridge loan is? What what does that do for um, the borrower in a situation? So most loans are priced on uh, debt service coverage ratios and debt yields. Bridge loans do not price the current 
uh, net operating income of a property, but rather the the potential. So they underwrite the income in year two or year three or as stabilized, and they they'll size the loan off that. So you know, whereas there might be very little income in the first year because you know rents are severely below market. Once renovations, so we're using a multifamily example, you might be acquiring a property at a five cap and taking it to a seven cap. They're going to price it on the potential that when you have fixed the cash flow to get it up to a seven cap, and they're going to take that and give you value for that. So it's a higher loan to value loan that's meant to be transitional in nature. It's usually priced on a three year with two one year extensions. And I think the one really relevant point is that those extensions have tests that you have to pass. And, and that's where we're seeing loans being renegotiated now. Well, give me an example of a test that one might have to pass. Cause I have a, I'll have another question in a second, but why don't you just give me an example of a test that a lender might, might have to, to, uh, for the bridge loan um, to continue. They might require you to buy a new, the big one right now is interest rate caps, right? Is they want you to buy a new cap and that cap would have cost you, you know, $30,000, $80,000 last year. Now it's in the millions. So that in itself can cause a capital call. And then there are other cash flow related tests such as service coverage ratios and, uh, and the like. Interesting. But the big one now is people need to get a new cap in order to extend. And that's multiple millions. Yeah. Is it possible, just listening to what you're saying, is it possible really you could have an asset, let's pretend it's multifamily for a second because that's your background. That is, you know, in a sense, performing well. Let's pretend it's 96, 98% occupied. People are paying rent. But because the underlying loan structure is cheap, maybe that, maybe that investment originally was predicated on a 3% loan or something like that. I'm going to make it up. And now when it comes due, they're facing 8% or something higher, right? So is it possible that you could have a perfectly well-performing asset in trouble? Is that, is that kind of what I'm hearing a little bit as those, as those loans some do? So that describes a very, very large segment of the market, actually. I mean, it's they're assets that are operationally fine, but that are financially distressed because of the high attachment point of the debt and the now high interest rate of the debt. Whereas the market were, you know, buying at a three and a half cap and taking it to a five cap and then selling it at a four cap was the the norm, quote unquote, for older asset. So 70s, 80s and 90s vintages of multifamily now the cap rates have expanded to the debt used to cost three percent, and now it costs you know six and six point three percent is the you know the bottom end, and that's the the lowest priced Fannie and Freddie, and it's a much lower attachment point. So what we're seeing is a lot of people coming back with healthy assets that get a Fannie loan price, and then they need another ten to twenty percent of uh, MES or PREF in order to fill that. Right, that's uh, that's challenging, and I, let's just for the audience. I think that let's make it clear. That's this is a very different situation than oh eight, oh nine, oh ten, you know, ten. Right, that was a uh, situation where we had overbuilding and some other things going on. But we are kind of in a you know, I guess every situation is unique. But today's market is, as you just said, you could have a well performing asset that, because of their underlying financial structure, could be a troubled asset, which seems kind of crazy to me. But I guess that's the reality today. And as you started out earlier, you said, we're, we're, are we really in the eye of the storm or the beginning? Is the storm just approaching? I'm not 100% sure. I, I think we're in a calm before the storm any way you look at it. I think that when people start, you know, let's take an example of Phoenix, which is a city that we've been active in historically and that, you know, we are still active in. We have an asset in right now. 
once you start seeing 1980s and 70s assets repricing and actually starting to trade, it's going to force appraisal to come down, and that's going to you know, uh, and that's going to hit quite a few sponsors that are trying to get refinanced or that are trying to extend their loans. And it's not just the, the lender has to look as well as at their lender, right? Because if it's a bridge lender, they're you know they're lending a ten million dollars, but they're borrowing five of that from someone else in order to increase the returns. So one thing that we're very mindful of right now is we're we're in the market for a bridge loan for a distressed senior housing deal. Is we're very more mindful than we're less focused on rate, but we're more focused on who's holding that paper, right? And are they servicing it themselves? That seems to be a lot more crucial than the cost of capital right now. Yeah, super super interesting. I'll just underline again: it's the the assets can be well performing. Uh, from a cash flow occupancy, you know, let's let's exclude the downtown office market for a second. That's a sort of a sort of a different issue. But you could have a multifamily, a senior housing, even a retail center performing well. It's occupied, but the underlying debt is a problem, which is is a problem in the market today. And hence, you have to you, know, you have to look for alternatives. That's it's to me that's fascinating, right? It's just very different than uh, overbuilding and empty assets and that sort of thing. So it's just a different market situation. Uh, one other thing you mentioned earlier I'd like to just learn a little bit more about is rescue. I think you called it rescue financing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what rescue financing is and how that plays into the you know, situation that we just described? So there's many, there's many forms of it, right? Equity and sub-debt are the two major ones. When you look at sub-debt or you know, MES and PREF, uh, that's just filling in, you know, you sponsor did well on his or his or her value add plan, did what they were supposed to do. They come out for a loan and they're going to get their stabilizer perm loan and they're going to get, let's call it an agency loan. And then they need an extra, you know, few million dollars in order because they're going to take out a loan of 20 million, but they're only getting 17 on their new one. So they need someone to put in $3 million for a certain period of time till they can grow into their, their NOI enough to, to t then take that, that sub debt out. And then there's just equity, which is usually involves some sort of a cram down or a, a, um, a de-equitizing of, of whoever invested before because in the end that equity has become almost worthless. And sometimes there's one of the, the terms that you hear is called a hope note. So it's not a full cram down, but they still get you know X amount of economics above a certain threshold, which is very, very high. I love I love some of the terms you're throwing out, Greg. Hope no, cram down. You know, again, this is this is sort of the the humor for the commercial real estate and lending industry right now. These words are making a big comeback now. You didn't hear them three years ago. No, nobody, very few people were using pref and mez, and now it's everyone's talking about it. Right, right. Wow, the times. You know, just think about a year, a year and a half ago, we weren't thinking about this at all, and now, and now uh, it, it's here. So uh, be at the eye of the storm at the beginning, and I, I imagine it varies a lot by, by asset type, right? And, you know, it depends uh, on the property type, although, as I pointed out earlier, an asset can be performing but still in trouble. So that could be any kind of asset type. But why don't we – so we got to your point of view on capital markets. Why, why don't we, we pause on that for a second? Let's delve in a little bit into property asset, you know, asset types and property types that you – from an artisan perspective or just your industry experience think perhaps are opportunities as well as those that you just, you know, you, you personally or you're as a, as a firm you'd shy away from. So um, you mentioned senior living a moment ago. You said they have an asset that has a little bit of trouble. 
I imagine senior living from the perspective of aging population and, and so forth is, you know, should be a good, you know, longer term investment. I, I don't happen to have a lot of experience in it, but I know enough about it. Um, you know, there are REITs in the senior living space. There's still a lot of mom and pop operators in the senior living space. So why don't you just give us your thoughts? Let's just start there as an asset class. And what are you seeing in the world of high quality senior living? Just give us some examples. You know, we mentioned before there are some assets that are operationally distressed and some and, and some that are financially distressed. So senior living is in both right now. And if you look historically, what happened is between call it 2014 and 2019, everyone was looking for this silver tsunami to come and you know this huge hockey stick in the senior population, and it didn't happen uh, quite like people thought. And people overbuilt, and it was there were a lot of absorption problems. And when you know someone's in a lease up and they can't get that lease up done, then they, they crush rates for everyone else. So it affects the whole market. And that's what happened, and then COVID hit. So it was a double whammy for that industry. So we've actually been transacting there, and we've done two deals in that space this year with the third one on the way. And what we find is that there are assets that are you know, operationally distressed that we have to turn around, but that are very new vintage, and there's very little competition to get them. And we are able to get them at, you know, at just price per pounds that are very, very attractive. So just to give you an idea, we just bought a, a, an asset in Dallas and we were able to assume a HUD loan at about 4% with 28 years left on it. And that's crucial for investors to know that you have a lot of room to, you know, a lot of a runway, especially. And that's an asset that can stabilize between 10 and 12% cap rate, right? Whereas right now it's loss making. So these are very high returning assets in a market that's actually growing, right? So we're buying in very strong markets with very high occupancy where we are the one outlier. And we've done two deals that are very similar. And we're very, very bullish on the space right now. Pricing has to do with it because we're able in five months to lease up a significant amount of these facilities even though the market has been, you know, kind of stagnant because we're able with our basis, we're able to compete with everyone on, we're just such a low cost provider, thanks to our basis. Interesting. So when you say operationally distressed, you're, what you're saying is you mentioned sort of newer facilities, I assume they're high amenity or whatever, they're good locations and so forth, but operationally distressed because they don't have the occupancy, as you call it. Yeah, I don't know. There's probably a term for senior housing occupancy that I don't know, but they don't have the occupancy that, that would make it a, a more long-term viable asset. Absolutely. So we acquired, so the, we acquired one at a 50% occupancy and the other one at 33% occupancy. Um, so these are losing money, which is not typical in real estate, uh, but they're, they're loss making. So you have to you know, fund a reserve on acquisition and you have to find a bridge lender who's willing to uh, look through those losses and at the potential of the asset and you know, the value of the land, the value of the building, even if you had to empty it out. And th those deals really pencil out well. And to you know, back to your first question on the availability of capital for these deals, we were able to fund these without a problem because they were truly differentiated than what people were seeing. And we were really able to get them on, you know, 80% discounts to replacement cost. Right. So I think you're pointing out a couple of things. What is senior housing as a asset class over the, what you call the long term, I suppose, is an attractive investment class, right? It obviously depends on the asset and so forth. 
Um, I think that that's uh, that's an interesting segment and and something our listeners will be interested in because they're um, they're all over the country and the population in general is is aging. So it should be a continued uh, continued path for success for those kind of assets as long as the underlying real estate investment makes sense. Um, why don't we go look into some others? Um, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, manufactured homes or mobile homes? If you have, uh, I don't know if that's an area that you're either bullish on or stay away from, but why don't we talk about that? Because that's a little bit of a different asset class as well. That's a phenomenal business. We're looking at deals right now, but that's a an asset class that operationally does very difficult to get distressed because you're basically renting land and someone's putting a home on that land. And it's very it's more expensive to move the home than if you know if your rent lot rent is five hundred bucks, it's gonna cost you ten grand to move the house. Someone raises your rent by thirty dollars, you just pay it. And it's usually one of the lowest cost housing in an area. So those landlords are able to get steady income increases over time. And there are a lot of big platforms that continue to acquire at very low cap rates right now. So we have not been able to look at a deal that makes sense to us. Even though some low, some lot of players with very low cost of capital continue to acquire there, in the manufactured home space, is it you know? And I know you work primarily in Western states, but is it also for an investor potentially a development site as well? I know I think it depends on regulations by state, but do you do you at all look at that investment as you know near term rent flow, rent, you know stream of rental uh, for the land, so to speak, as you said? But does it also offer potential for resale as development space, or is that really not a consideration when you look at the mobile home park uh, investments? So some are, cover, as you mentioned, covered land plays. And right now, as a group, we wouldn't be looking at a covered land play because unless there was a very high income on it, just because I don't know how much development's going to happen in the next two to three years because of the problems in the debt markets, cost of capital, and cost of construction, frankly. Cost of construction has not budged at all. Some players say that it might happen next year, but it's also that ties into another thing is the availability of labor is very, very, labor markets are still very tight right at the moment. And that affects everything. So it's great for your workforce housing investments because those are still very operational at the moment. But you know that, that you, you're not going to see without labor kind of repricing cost of construction, you know, materials eventually will reprice, but that's such a big component that they're not going to come down meaningfully. Yeah, I think we just hit on something kind of important. When people talk about real estate investments, you look at the cap rate and the return and the financing, but then you have to look at other, I guess, their externalities, maybe in, in economic terms of things like cost of cost of materials, cost of labor, uh, supply chain issues, right? I think some many of those have been resolved, um, but I suppose there's still probably issues with that as well. So as you look at investing, and the value of an asset, both near-term and long-term, you have to look at all those things coming together. I know in the hospitality space, at least what I understand, is you know the shortage of labor is an issue, right? Some, and for some hotels that can't really be fully operational, if one were investing in that space, one would have to take that into consideration. But that plays into construction and, as well as day-to-day operations. Absolutely. Yeah. I imagine the senior housing space we just talked about, that's also an issue, right? Because that's a very high touch, you know, you need a lot of people to keep that, uh, the population safe and and uh, the assets are operating well. We have 60 employees in Oklahoma City and 40 in, uh, in Dallas. So it's very intense and we're having a lot of turnover of those employees. So it's, it's a challenge. There's a lot, a, there's a lot of HR work goes into that, but that's, 
honestly, that's the opportunity and that's the edge that you have. If you're a very good operator in that space, which our partner is, and we've been able to actually work through that. And what's handicapping our, you know, our competitors is, you know, can become an advantage to us. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely an interesting topic. The intersection of labor markets and commercial real estate, you know, it's just, again, it's not something people necessarily look at at face value, um, but it's definitely an issue. It's definitely an issue when you uh, make an investment decision. Greg, why don't we talk about any, what other property types are attractive to you today? I know you have a background, uh, as you said earlier, in multifamily, but what else, what else is attractive? Or maybe what are you just deciding right now for your, for Artisan in particular, just to stay away from? Let's, let's talk about both sides. Um, it's hard to make blanket statements because everything's attractive at a price, right? So we're spending a lot of time right now on peripheral asset classes like build to suit for addiction treatment or mental health because we feel that these are going to be a priority for many budgets at the at the state level and at the federal level. So we're spending a lot of time on that. We haven't closed any deals in that yet. And I think our biggest time allocation right now is on pref equity because until there's been some price discovery earning a 14 to 18 percent return with a much higher attachment point seems like the, one of the most attractive risk rewards so we're spending a lot of time on senior and on pref equity mainly on multifamily on rescue but i already had a phone call this morning about this is that there's very little being transacted in pref equity right now everybody's asking for pricing but nobody's pulling the the trigger yet because I don't think the realization has come yet that 15 is the right cost of capital for that. They're used to 12. Right. Uh, as they say, every seller uh, is looking for the return of uh, a year ago and every buyer is looking for the discount of tomorrow, right? Or something like that. I don't know how that phrase goes exactly. But that's sort of the situation, which causes, you know, there are transactions happening. There's just not a, there's just not a lot, right? There, there's not a lot of out there. As you said, uh, everything's waiting for price discovery, as you said earlier. Just thinking, of, uh, speaking of multifamily, any preference in type, location? I mean, we could talk about value add. We could talk about high amenity, suburban, urban. Uh, I know in my hometown of Chicago, like in a submarket uh, just west of downtown, I think there's no less than like six 25-story multifamily buildings under construction. Uh, I, I look at that and I worry a little bit about future occupancy. At the same time, one has to recognize those deals probably started four or five years ago, right? They bought the land, they raised the capital, they were delayed by COVID, and as long as they had the permits, they might as well come out of the ground. So just in terms of, um, let's just talk about you know urban, suburban location. Do you have any preferences or, or thoughts on, on um, you know, geographic marketplaces that are desirable or not? We've always veered towards the workforce housing aspect, so kind of B properties, just because you can't build anymore. So you know, supply is completely inelastic, and there are some high growth markets. So we're in Phoenix, for instance, and the population keeps growing. A lot of you know people move to the city from every income demographic, and so with a fixed supply rates are very supported. So we've seen rates come down a bit from a high level, but in good markets, they haven't come down that much. So we stay focused on that and we look and, you know, it you can't paint a city like Phoenix with one, you know, broad brushstroke. You got to look at submarkets, right? Tempe might be a great submarket. So is the north of Phoenix near the, the big two TSMC plants because there's 20,000 construction workers there. 
whereas other submarkets will be a lot weaker because they're a little bit further away from economic drivers. So real estate, everything is hyper local, and you know the quality of the asset matters a lot. You know how much you're going to have to spend to make it look good. So we like to work on affordable luxury. So we try to get very clean 1980s and 90s assets and make them as nice as possible. So we get the nicest renters and, you know, hopefully turn the least amount of tenants, which is, which is a big cost and get a stable community with good tenants in a good neighborhood. And, you know, then you just let the real estate do the work, right? Whereas a lot of deals in the last cycle were predicated on holding something for two years with bridge debt and then flipping it and selling it to the next guy or girl. Now you have to lock in long-term debt and, you know, you have to be in good markets, which makes you think a lot more about, you know, not going to just take this $800 apartment and make it 950. It's more about taking this $800 apartment, making it 950, but where is it going to be four years from now? Is it a good submarket? And am I going to be able to escalate rents for 3% for the foreseeable future? Or is it just going to be flat because the population dynamics are negative and people are leaving that city and actually you might be flat for the next four or five years, which in an inflationary environment is a catastrophe because your costs and you know, we come back to labor, which we talked about earlier, your other costs are going up. Insurance, right? If you look at Florida, whereas one unit used to cost you 300 to insure, it's now 3000 in some markets or 2500 That's crazy. And I had a very interesting conversation with our uh, insurance broker. And uh, the gentleman was based in, uh, in Tulsa. And he made the point that, you know, there's been, there was a billion dollar incident in Tulsa. He's like, have you heard about it? I'm like, no. And it was just a storm that blew through town and created a billion dollars of damage. And there's, there's two things. So there's a higher recurrence of these storms coming. And also there is the reinsurance pricing, which was at very, very depressed levels, which is not very elevated level. So the reinsurance margins are, are increasing. So you get these double whammy from insurance. So in Phoenix right now, it's still $300 a unit to insure, you know, a little bit more. Um, and we're hoping that stays that way, but who knows what happens in five years. And that's a huge risk is on the operating side as well. Interesting. I think what we where we're discovering, we're talking in this conversation. Everything is interconnected: the labor, the cost of capital, the materials, and then you just pointed out insurance. Right? There's so many things that go into creating a successful real estate investment beyond the bricks and mortar of the property. Not to mention the hyper local nature, as you mentioned, of of each asset. So as we get get towards you know relative to the end of our, our conversation, let how do you source assets? Do you do you you know are you looking for off the market assets? Are you looking for actively marketed programs? You know where do you where do you source um, you know opportunities for for artisan? Well, twofold. So in multifamily, we know the markets that we know well. So that's Texas and Arizona. We know brokers there, and we go direct to them. And a lot is being shown to us off market right now because. People don't want to list an asset and get embarrassed when it doesn't trade, right? So they want to test the market off market. So the typical broker would go out to five people and give them a chance to price it. And in other asset classes where we team up, we're, we're really more underwriting the sponsor and his or her ability to execute a business plan and source assets. So, you know, we, we've had a great experience in the senior housing space and we're speaking to new sponsors every day. And we're seeing a lot of deal flow that way. When you speak to sponsors, some of them 
might just have an amazing deal and that might be enough to get a joint venture across the line with us. That's interesting. I imagine a lot of people are thinking, is is there an opportunity in distressed assets? I guess the answer is there's always an opportunity in all kinds of assets, not just distressed assets. But do you think, you know, acquiring distressed assets, you know, however that may happen, is the place people investors should be focusing now? Or should they just really just focus on the the you know operating nature and the potential for a property? So operate distressed assets are funny. Um, they're actually not as easy as they sound because while the the pricing that you could achieve, so we you know we paid uh, fifty five thousand dollars a door for a Dallas uh, senior living, the operational nature of it is very time consuming. And when you look at deals in bankruptcy, and we're working on one right now, it's been five months. We've spent a fortune on legal without having closed yet. And it's a lot of brain damage before you get closed. And and then, you know, the, the pricing of the asset gets a little bit mitigated by the fact that you have to have certain reserves built in to bring this asset back to health. And sometimes you don't have the the time or the luxury to do as much due diligence because of the speed of the transactions. So it, it's not... It's not a free ride is what I'm trying to say. But yes, we're going to see a cycle in distress, but sometimes getting a very discounted healthy asset is a lot better proposition than having to restructure something and, you know, having all sorts of unknown liabilities pop up. Yeah, interesting. You know, in real estate, there's opportunities everywhere. It all depends on the position of the investor and the capital source and many of the things we discussed. So uh, I think the answer is, you know, Distressed is an opportunity, but it's not the only opportunity, and there are many other factors coming into play. This is by far the most interesting market I've seen in my life, and I think it's about to get more interesting come the beginning of next year. That's going to be, I think you're, you're already seeing a lot of assets coming back to market, and once the floodgates open, I fear that there's going to be a lot coming to market. So it's good to be very close to your capital right now, keep a strong balance sheet, and you know the deals are going to come. All right, great advice. You know, as an individual, I have a BA in economics. You have a master's in economics. So I'm going to ask you for a little bit of a forecast. And remember, economists have to be as right as the weather people, right? It's only as good as the weather today. Do you, what? What would you know? In just in a short version, what's your outlook for? I guess artisan or maybe in general real estate investing over the next, let's call it, twelve months. Right now, I think the next couple of months are going to continue to be slow. And then I think in the beginning of next year, things are going to pick up. Once somebody comes out of the gate, other people are going to have to follow suit. Because once you start getting, you know, if you paid $200,000 a door for an 80s asset and something trades at 120, you're not going to be able to get refinanced on it at the same level that you thought. So I think a lot of people are going to start listing their assets and it's going to, you're going to see pricing probably overreact to the downside because too many people have waited. I think the really smart money stepped out of assets a couple months ago, took a little bit of a haircut and said, okay, I'm stepping away and just took the pain then because I think what's coming ahead is going to be a lot more. What mitigates that a little bit is that the lenders are giving people more time because they they have to for their own, uh, for their own need. And that's going to, you know, probably mean that it's all going to come to a head sometime in the beginning of next year. So, you know, I, I think it was Richard Nixon says, find me an economist with just one hand. But, you know, so on one hand, you have a lot of over deals that were done at way too high level. And on the other hand, the lenders are, are helping them out. So it's definitely going to, I think we're going to, I'm on the side of there's going to be a lot of opportunities. 
That's fantastic, Greg. This is exactly the conversation I wanted to have, as I said at the beginning of the podcast today. You know, there's a lot you can read about in the headlines, but it's a very different perspective to talk about, talk with someone like yourself who's involved in making the investment decisions and working with uh, the different financing options. So, Greg, I really want to say thank you and appreciate your perspective from uh, as, a, as a leader of Artisan and Artisan Capital, just giving us that, that on-the-ground perspective of what's going on in the market. You've been a fantastic guest today. Thank you for, for being here. Thank you, Dan, for the opportunity. And you know, I'm obviously a big admirer of your firm as well. You guys have been great, and it's been great doing business with you guys over the years. So I look forward to doing a lot more, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as I as I tell um, our professionals at Coldwell Banker Commercial, very much what you said is like, you know, if you've been through a couple of these market cycles, there's always a period of kind of frozen, right? That's kind of the the maybe the term I think you used earlier. And it will thaw. It will thaw, and there will be transactions. Uh, hopefully, where your your timing uh, that you suggest early next year is when the thaw maybe begins. So we'll knock on wood for that to happen. But again, Greg, thank you very much for sharing your perspective. Greg, you've been a fantastic guest on CRE with CBC Worldwide. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please follow us uh, on your favorite podcast platform. And we look forward to having you listen to future podcasts with insights into commercial real estate in the future. Mm-hmm.